On today's episode of My Climate Journey, we're joined by Julia Souter, the CEO of the Eldez Council. But what's Eldez, you might be wondering? Eldez stands for Long Duration Energy Storage, encompassing technologies capable of storing significant energy for periods ranging from 10 hours to several days or even weeks. The Eldez Council, a global nonprofit membership organization, is dedicated to propelling the decarbonization of the energy system with a focus on affordability. They drive innovation, commercialization, and the implementation of long-duration energy storage technologies, uniting technology and equipment providers, renewable energy firms, utilities, grid operators, investors, and in consumers. Julia's career is rooted in the crossroads of renewable energy and energy resilience. Her experience includes roles such as Director of Intergovernmental Relations at NERC, the North American Energy Reliability Corporation, Director of Western Renewable Grid Planning at NRDC, and most recently, Executive Director of the Long Duration Energy Storage Association of California. We've previously explored various long-duration energy storage solutions on the show, making this conversation with Julia even more intriguing. Often, we hear the phrase, the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow in the context of renewables, leading to economic fluctuations and service intermittency. This is a challenge that Eldez aims to confront directly. Although many long-duration energy storage solutions are currently trailing renewable energy technologies in terms of development and deployment, Julia explains that this is expected to change significantly in the coming years. But before we jump in... I'm Cody Sims. I'm Yin Liu. And I'm Jason Jacobs. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. And with that, Julia, welcome to the show. Thanks, Cody. It's great to be here. Really appreciate the invitation. I'm so excited to talk with you. And you were introduced to me by Eliza Nemzer my co-founder at Climate Change Makers and one of my favorite people in the world. And so when Eliza says, you got to talk to Julia, clearly I got to talk to Julia. Eliza's a rock star. So I'm just honored to be in fellow company. And yes, it's a great connection, great friend. Well, fantastic. Looking at your background, you have been working in and around the renewable energy space for basically your entire career. And now you are wholly focused on long duration energy storage. So we're going to dive all into that topic today. Before we do, why don't we hear from you, like how this became the thing you decided to focus on, given the breadth of different topics that are available to look at in the renewable energy space and what your path has been to get here. It's definitely been a wild ride. <laughs> I think we all set off with these goals in our life and the pathway, whether you're on a merry-go-round or roller coaster, it just kind of all gets interconnected. And I'm really grateful for the journey I've been on. I started at U.S. Department of Energy and got to jump in and work on the Black Gun investigation and really got to see firsthand how dependable our entire economy, our livelihoods are on electricity, power, and heat, and really got excited about solutions and how to take this amazing machine, this piece of infrastructure and continue to modernize it and adapt it. And so got to work on some amazing projects with colleagues at the U.S. Department of Energy 
in addition to the blackout report, worked on the 360 energy corridors, those west-wide corridors, and got to see the importance of working with the Department of Defense, the Department of Interior, the Department of Agriculture, of how to kind of work together to have plans to coordinate infrastructure. What is the blackout investigation for those of us who maybe weren't familiar? So in 2003, when there were three Canadian provinces and 11 states that were pretty much like just after 9-11. So a lot of people thought it was another attack, but it really was a blackout. So power was lost starting in Ohio and kind of just took down half of the country in the Northeast. I was in and New York for that. It was crazy. You were. So were you stuck in an elevator? I was not. <laughs> no. I was just walking around Brooklyn, <laughs> but it was crazy. Like it was a, it was actually turned into a huge party, <laughs> but it could have been really dangerous. It was just a huge awareness and awakening that, wait a second, we need to put some standards, some accountability here because it was, there's just so much weighing. I mean, that lives were lost. $80 billion at that time, you know, was just diminishing the economy. So it just was a turning point for the Energy Policy Act in 2005 that really set mandatory reliability standards for the industry and also all these other pieces of work to help coordinate planning, permitting, really just to try to see the whole ecosystem of moving it forward. Yeah. So after working at DOE, wanted to look more about implementation of the Energy Policy Act. And I got to work at the North American Electric Liability Corporation. So again, implementing those standards and putting out fires daily, <laughs> you know, working on changing culture and awareness of cybersecurity and so many other elements to keeping the lights on. I saw that on your background, the abbreviation NERC, N-E-R-C, and I wondered how that is different from FERC, F-E-R-C, which I've heard a lot about, but I haven't heard as much about N-E-R-C. N-E-R-C has been a NERC, has been around since the 60s, but it was kind of being a regulatory, quasi-regulatory group, but then the Energy Policy Act really gave it teeth to be both kind of in the quasi-regulatory of being working with industry on creating standards to be held accountable, but also having the compliance arm to really kind of mandate a million dollars per day per fine and violation, and then working with FERC overseeing everything. So it's not just investor-owned utilities, it's every utility that works to keep the lights on it is you know, held accountable to these reliability standards. And so this organization was working you know, as kind of in the middle, trying to either keep everyone happy or no one happy of trying to see how we can keep the lights on. So it's a really important organization highlighting scenario planning, long-term assessments, and kind of looking at the themes of how to keep the grid working in a unified manner. So building on your work from having worked on investigating why the blackouts happened, you moved into a role of actually working at the government regulatory body that was managing resilience to try to avoid future blackouts. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah, it was another great opportunity to work with amazing people dedicated to keeping the lights on and just really learning different cultures of different utilities and you know how to work with Canada and Mexico and these inner ties and looking at the three systems in the United States that are caught, the Western system, the Eastern system, and how they work and have their own cultures and <laughs> dynamics. But then wanted to um, then go build something. So then I worked with Michael Skelly at CleanLine and his amazing team and got to work on building HVDC transmission lines. And part of that line is actually energized today in New Mexico, which is pretty exciting to see. Transmission can get built. You've just got to keep pushing policies forward and keep motivated and get the, all the figures in play with financing and all the stakeholders. But it's, it definitely was a game changer. And then because of all the work doing educating governors, mayors, community leaders on the importance of infrastructure for clean energy transition, I moved over to Natural Resources Defense Council and became an advocate working with different coalitions of the importance of regulatory matters, but also how do you balance grid operations and transmission planning and really kind of seeing the, again, the entire ecosystem. And then moved into starting my own company 
and working on strategy and transmission planning, siding, equity, really talking about affordability in this just and equitable transition, working with First Nations, Native American tribes, because previous systems were just very exclusionary. And if we really want to make this an inclusive, equitable transition going forward, we have to change how we do things. And this was a big part of the transition I was playing in. During that time, at least while you were at NRDC, I guess a little earlier, maybe you were also on the board of the League of Conservation Voters in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, too. Is that correct? Here in San Francisco, very different than the state of California. But yes, I got to really work with local politics and really help on the importance of solar and wind and really understanding hydropower and looking at who powers our homes and our communities and what kind of benefits we can tie back to the community. And so sort of recognizing that, I guess, in all of your time, both understanding grid resiliency and then building out transmission lines, recognizing that oftentimes it was local policy as much as it was financing dollar availability and whatnot that was causing things to not get done as fast as you were hoping, I'm guessing. Very true. But you have to have some patience and (laughs) just keep some optimism alive to keep going because... I think the urgency just continues to build. And I think the awareness is growing among not just here in the United States, but globally about how critical it is to make this transition happen. And that's why I wanted to really move into this role, global role as CEO of the Long Duration Energy Storage Council, because storage is such a critical component to the entire network. You know, whether you're a remote system or a utility scale in the city center, or whether you are an island nation you're going to need long-duration energy storage to meet your net zero targets or your decarbonization goals. When I think of the big problems in the renewable space, you know, I think of deployment, right? How do we create more generation? How do we actually get more energy, renewable energy created? I think of transmission, which we talked about, which is how do you move energy around? And then storage is really a relatively new problem. We've had storage for a long time. But with renewables, it introduces this incredible need for storage, I think, at a higher level than we have had previously. Am I totally off base in how I think about that? You're right, Cody. We've had storage in a variety of ways. I mean, we store things in our homes, in our garages, you know, in our communities. We use storage to really help us give that flexibility. And now we need to make it work for our energy system and our grid infrastructures. And we are now making this transition happen that to your point on this flexibility is critical. And we're seeing weekly, it's no longer monthly or yearly, but weekly climate disasters that are happening around the world that we can't always depend on traditional sources. So for using wind and solar, we need to capture that when they're available and use it later when we need it. And that's what long duration can do. It gives you that flexibility to store the renewable energy, you save money because you're not curtailing it. You can also use storage as a transmission asset or a congestion and management reduction. And so as you move forward in this, you just really see that there's enormous value to longer duration storage for hours, days, months, and years. Oh, interesting. Using it as a transmission aspect, I suppose we'll get into topics like hydrogen and whatnot when we get there. But let's park that and come back to that because I hadn't really fully thought about that. Talk about the role you then took at LDES. What is LDES Council? The LDES Council is a global secretariat based in Brussels, and we bring together the entire ecosystem. So we have the four families of long duration storage and our technology members. So we have mechanical, thermal, electrochemical, and chemical. So we look at you know all the types of batteries that are on the periodic table that are not lithium ion <laughs> and power and heat, thermal energy storage. There's diverse companies that give, you know whether it's salts or aluminum or concrete or metals, volcanic rocks. We also look at chemical, which is hydrogen, look at green hydrogen, because it's that power, heat, hydrogen nexus that we're really kind of honing in on of the value out of LDES. 
And then mechanical, the tradition of pumped hydro is great LDES. And then there's all these new innovations happening with pumped hydro, but also new technologies. And so really coming together as the technology members sharing insights, really creating this marketplace, and then also having the equipment manufacturers, the customers, the financiers, the developers, the utilities, all validating the need for LDES. And so Queens Council produce reports and work on education, advocacy, and really trying to provide facts and data for decision makers around the world to really change the marketplace. It is a $4 trillion marketplace for LDES. This is a huge opportunity, and that's even a conservative number. And looking at what we need to do, if we're going to scale to this triply of renewables that so many organizations are talking about, which is 11 terawatts by 2030, we're looking at 8 terawatts by 2040 for long-duration energy storage. And so that really means 4 terawatts by 2030. So we have a long ways to go. Where are we today? Where are we now? By the end of the 2024, we'll be lucky to be at 175 gigawatts. Okay. Wow. So that's a, I can't do the quick math, but a, we have a huge scaling problem. Significant order of magnitude larger. <laughs> it's a huge order of magnitude. And I mean, and what's exciting is that there's one terawatt of wind, there's one terawatt of solar, but we need to still get to those 11 terawatts and we still need to get LDES up there so we can utilize the efficiency and the benefits of wind and solar, you know, decreasing emissions and providing, you know, lower costs. For listeners, we've had a few different long duration energy storage solution providers on the show that you can go back into the archives and listen to. One of the reasons I'm excited to have you here is because we can set the table with kind of the history of the space and then moving into what are the different solution types that are being worked on today, which you know you talked about some of the broad categories there. But before we do, just for my own education personally, can you describe how you think of or what the industry thinks of as long duration energy storage relative to short duration energy storage? Sure. So short duration, which is really important, it's four hours or less. And that's really supported by the marketplace today in various areas around the world. There is this kind of bridge of six to eight hours where both short and long duration can play. And that's also due to market elements and design today. As we move into long duration, you're really getting the 10 hours plus the multiple days, the months, and the seasons. And we, that's why the diversity of long duration storage can play in all these different areas. So short duration, for lack of a better way of thinking about it, is kind of, I would think of it as like a backup battery or you know helping you deal with an immediate power outage. L- exactly. Long duration is actually managing more of the supply and demand of energy or electricity in particular, I guess, from the grid perspective relative to what can be generated at any given moment in time. Right. And really kind of maximizing the renewable energy curtailment that gets wasted during the middle of the day. You can't store it for, you know, 10 hours later when you need it in the evening, or if you need it to store it for three days while you're dealing with, you know, a weather event that you have no wind or no solar, but you want to make sure your electricity stays on 24 seven. So it gives you that availability to meet every hour of every day, of every month, of every year with a long duration storage filling in those gaps. Do you see short duration, you know, over the next decade or so being heavily essentially covered by the growth of EVs and potentially two-way directionality between vehicle to home and vehicle to grid? I think it's great how two industries really helped uplift each other and that you had the transportation EV transition push lithium ion, but you also had the grid push this. But since but over 90% of lithium ion goes to EVs, there is going to be this kind of transition. A short duration is going to be really important, but how again do these market interfaces and what's happening with the supply chain? And so that's another thing about LDES. You know, a lot of the elements that we use are environmentally safe. They don't catch on fire. They're accessible in a variety of countries. And a lot of them are just you know very prevalent around the world. 
Well, let's go into some of the eldest solutions then. Let's start with, you called it traditional. So traditional pumped hydro, which has been around for decades and decades now. hundred years. Explain how that works and explain, you mentioned there are some new innovations starting to also hit that space as well. Mechanical, as you said, you know, has been around, if you looked at pumped hydro for over hundred years, it works quite well. It's the largest long durationary storage. You know, pumped hydro is over 90% of renewable energy right now in the world. It's really providing such a fantastic backbone that operators are really familiar with and they understand. And so as we transition to build on the mechanical energy, the gravity pull of pumped hydro, we're looking at, you know, what's compressed air, looking at liquid air. Before we do that, can you describe what pumped hydro is for folks who aren't quite familiar with it? Sure. So picture two buckets of water. And so one's higher than the other. And so you move water from the top bucket to the bottom bucket and then to produce electricity. And then when you don't need this, you use maybe the surplus energy, you pump it back up to the top bucket and you keep this kind of closed loop cycle. There's open loop and closed loop and different innovations, but just this movement of water up and down and back and forth produces electricity. As it comes downhill, it spins turbines essentially? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, great picture. <laughs> and now there's you know new technologies where you're going underground and you're pushing water or air down and pulling it back up. You know, There's above ground, below ground. We're looking at new technologies side to side it really is impressive whether you know you're using. I've heard of flywheels is another one I've heard of, which is like yes, spin- and flywheels do really well for both short and long. There, you know, there's a lot of different technologies that are great. It's that diversity that's so important because it depends on your geography and what you have available. Do you have reservoirs that you can use for not only recreation but pump hydro, but also for you know drought saving measures? Do you have some underground caverns that you can repurpose and utilize for? air and even green hydrogen. So again, that diversity is really important. But yeah, the new innovations are using less space, new types of water-based systems are not using water. There's, you know, again, liquid air, there's liquid CO2, and there are different types of, you know, mechanical elements with the gravity push and pull. It's fantastic to see that island nations, you know, urban centers, remote centers, transitioning from fossil fuel infrastructure into using, you know, existing jobs and infrastructure into mechanical is also, you know, we're seeing happen. So using mines, that's happening around the world too. So it's amazing just to see creativeness, but also just innovation developing to address the urgent needs we have. And then on the next big category is thermal that I would think of, which is how is heat used to store energy? Heat is a a form of energy, obviously. And heat is often needed is one of the primary uses for energy and heavy industrial use cases is to take energy or take electricity and figure out how to turn it into heat. Right. And yet, from what I understand, heat can also then be redirected back to energy. So there's a bidirectionality of that if you can manage to keep something stored for long enough. Traditional means of doing this is some kind of molten salt solution. Is that right? Yes. And that kind of builds from the experience in concentrating solar power. But, you know, there's a lot of different types of salts. And again, another element that a mineral that's really easy to have access to. We're also looking at other types of salts. We're looking at rocks. We're looking at mechanic rocks. We're looking at crushed aluminum. We're looking at cement. There's so many different substances that can really kind of produce this heat at a wide range of temperatures. We did We have a report posted on our website called Net Zero Heat, where we go into the three different types of thermal energy storage, whether it's sensible heat, which is a majority of the thermal energy technologies today, latent heat and thermochemical, which is probably one of the hardest. But it's looking at solids to liquids, just looking at solids and looking at salts. So having this diversity, again, is really important because as you pointed out, the industrial sector is really hard to decarbonize, but it's not impossible. And LDES has a significant role to play providing that heat to hard debate sectors, you know, agriculture, 
fertilizer, cement, steel, aluminum, the mining industry, you know, all these groups need LDES to really help on the transition, especially because so many of these technologies are available today. They're in the marketplace. We just need them to scale up. And so that's what's also really exciting is that we have solutions today to start addressing the needs of tomorrow because LDES really does help maximize the cost savings, the environmental benefits, and the reliability. One thing I want to point out too with thermal is that we did in our report, we highlight that you can save $540 billion a day with LDES in your systems. And just because of the savings you get for the low cost resources, you know, the renewable energy curtailment savings and so many other elements, but it's quite impressive just to see the optionality of what LDES can bring. You mentioned that heat is used by heavy industry. We'll get into this probably in more detail, but when it comes to who is buying, you know, each of these systems, do you see certain solutions being more used by utilities to manage grid scale, energy storage long term, and certain systems being used more by private enterprise to help them basically build their own resiliency and or cost efficiency improvements into their operations? What we're seeing with who's buying LDES, you know, it's a diverse range of customers. We're seeing databases and data centers look at LDES as a solution for power and heat to have that reliability right there to give them that 24-7 that they need to have. We're seeing a variety of industrial customers come to LDES to produce heat for producing food in agriculture or fertilizer, you know, producing while well, I'm helping with desalinization. So it really depends on the industry. We're looking at the mine industry, not just for what they can do to produce the mines for LDES, but also the minerals, but also on site, moving away from backup diesel generator and using longer energy stores to fill in the gaps or having this opportunity to really pull in thermal energy storage is quite impressive. And one other element too is just the amount of emissions that are caused by the industrial sector over 40% and just how important it is to have LDES really kind of address scope one, two, and three emissions is also a huge part. One last thing on thermal energy, you mentioned district heating. You know, just the fact that we power homes a lot with gas and we can move into using thermal energy storage to provide, you know, heat for district heating, for homes, for so many other elements. Wait, unpack that some more. So this would mean, you know, you're actually transmitting heat over distance, potentially? There's technologies that use existing infrastructure to push heat as steam. Okay, got it. I mean, I think of geothermal, but that would be local to a building. Would that also potentially be considered a energy storage system as well? We have synergies with geothermal and with other partners, and that's why we're also part of the Global Renewables Alliance. And yes, geothermal has base capacity, but LDES can also do dispatchable elements and also looking at what kind of creative batteries or LDES can be on site too. So yes, the amount of investment that's happening for LDES technology and these partnerships that are occurring, I think there was, what, $29 billion since 2019, and it's growing. I mean, you see announcements every week now for gigawatt factories and hundreds of millions of dollars being invested because I think the writing's on the wall. Traditional banks, VC firms, many other groups are you know, making the capital work for LDES because they see the market potential. If you think about it, a traditional power plant is often converting energy into steam and using that steam to spin a turbine. And so if you can just pull the steam straight out of the ground, not only can you heat something with it, but you could presumably create electricity out of it. Yeah, LDES and especially thermal energy storage can replace gas plants. And we can help that with you know, off-green greenhouses, peaker plants, aluminum refineries, chemical plants. You can really you know, put an electric boiler with thermal energy storage or a heat pump with thermal energy storage right there and get cost savings and environmental benefits. And you can find a lot more of this about it in our reports. 
we're also producing a new report coming out in October on industry decarbonization, LDES, and how there are certain solutions that can you know, happen today that can really help address many of the questions and concerns the industry has. Hey everyone, I'm Yin, a partner at MCJ Collective, here to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have grown to thousands of members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with different backgrounds and points of view. What we all share is a deep curiosity to learn and a bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, several nonprofits have been established, and a bunch of hiring has been done. Many early-stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming, like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early-stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. Whether you've been in the climate space for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the Members tab at the top. Thanks, and enjoy the rest of the show. Continuing our tour through the categories... The next one is, you know, when I think of storage, obviously I think of batteries, but when it comes to the types of batteries used for long duration energy storage, these are batteries I'm much less familiar with. Flow batteries, (laughs) static batteries, metal, iron, air batteries. Like I don't actually know what any of this stuff is. So maybe let's spend a little bit of time here unpacking all of this. It's really phenomenal to see the diversity of electrochemical types of batteries for long duration storage. And you mentioned it, you know, the static batteries, the flow batteries the metal iron batteries, the air batteries, and other battery chemistries, the aqueous, sodium, magnesium, calcium. It's phenomenal. Depends on the technology, but looking at you know the two different setups of one tank to the other tank and just moving ions back and forth and the charge and discharge, like whether you're using metal or a different anode to kind of charge and discharge, how long you can hold it for. And so what's great about so many of these technologies is that they can hold it for 8, 10, you know, 12, even hundreds of hours. So there's not a lot of real loss of efficiency. They have long cycle lives. There's like 20 year assets, the safety aspects, the ambient temperatures. A lot of these can be, you don't have a huge rise in temperatures. They're very kind of self-contained. They have the load falling, the ramp falling. There's a lot of these ancillary services that you need for the market and grid services you can get with LDES. And so is the goal here a fewfold? One, try to utilize materials that are not as supply chain constrained as we know the the typical lithium ion chemistries are. And two, it's just a very different sort of utilization model than an EV is, for example, where you're having to charge and discharge it frequently and you're having to use it to essentially power a vehicle on and off, on and off, on and off. Yeah, much more efficient and effective. And just because you have that longevity of just the duration, which is so critical, and it gives you that flexibility. Let's say, you know, you need that eight hours to cover from 2 p.m. onward just to, you know, see what kind of ramp you have. And that curve is talked about in California. There's a camel curve, there's a dragon curve. It depends which country you're in. But this is a huge need that LDS can really give you the opportunity to have that energy shifting so you can really have that flexibility need for your climate dependent generation. Can you explain what some of these batteries look like or are? Sure. I mean, many of them look just like a container, like you see it everywhere else. Like just think, so the containers, stack the containers, some use kind of proprietary pieces within each one. But yeah, no, I think they look like a very traditional battery in many ways. And it's kind of like just building on existing knowledge of why this is so important. Just experimentation with different chemistries, essentially. Yeah. It's pretty amazing that it's not something scary. It's more that, wow, this makes so much sense. This is you know, building on basic chemistry. 
The last category that I guess would get thrown around is chemical, which I think of as mostly hydrogen or ammonia. So basically other forms of chemicals that themselves have either combustibility or usability as an energy source. Right. And kind of looking at, again, like the 100 plus, really looking at seasonality that you can get from a variety of LDEVs, but just you know moving into using the existing infrastructure, looking at what you can do with electrolysis and then taking it to the next level. There's a big debate over, you know, how to using hydrogen for storage and kind of depends on geographies and also using hydrogen as a fuel. We've looked at just looking at different ports around the world and looking again at the partnership of what types of LDES technologies can work in harmony with hydrogen at ports and how to look at the green hydrogen economy and what does this do. We've also looked at island nations where there's existing pumped hydro and how can you bring in hydrogen as a kind of a hybrid in nature. So Again, looking at the way that the four families of LDES can really you know, work together, but the power heat hydrogen element is so critical and that diversity is also something that's a necessity. And so in many cases, I would think of hydrogen as being, you know, to some extent, an alternative to natural gas. Is that a right way to think about it or is that totally off? I would say LDES is alternative to natural gas. LDES in general. Yes, okay. because we really can replace natural gas, backup diesel generators, you know, so many of these fossil fuels that are out there. This is possible with LDES, with renewable energy. And you talked about LDES as a transmission mechanism. Mm -hmm. That's where the hydrogen use case really comes to mind for me because it's a thing that you can move from place to place. Is that correct? It's an interesting element, which I have a perspective because it's one way. I think another way is to look at, you know, having an LDES technology right there at a congestion area can really kind of help store any congestion at the moment and then kind of, you know, help the grid really push power around and then kind of bring it back on when there's any gaps or a need. You can defer transmission development and it takes so long anyways. Like while you're waiting, put LDES in to help you manage your system. So there's a variety of ways to really bring in the grid attributes of LDES to really help maximize existing infrastructure. Who's buying LDES solutions today? Is this how are you seeing, I guess, maybe I'll ask it a different way. How are you seeing the purchasing of these solutions evolve from grid-based purchasers or utility-based purchasers to also industrial and commercial-based use cases? One of the four reports on our website focuses on the 24-7 clean power purchase agreement. Take an existing tool that's very familiar to diverse customers, a power purchase agreement that utilities, industry, the many different types of traditional and innovative customers are using and building into it this metric of, well, if you really want to have 24-7 renewable energy, then you need long duration to do this. And if you change the criteria in your power purchase agreement, then you can get the benefits of this agreement, but make sure that you're getting 24-7 clean energy because of the way that LDS will work for you. And so it's becoming a, a very successful tool around the world of you know being able to adapt the value of LDES into a 24-7 clean power purchase agreement. So there's one way, like the bilateral contracts that's working. The ancillary service market, is it kind of growing and adopting? There's a way that LDES gets payments today for charging discharge, but now that there's the reality of the other benefits of load following, frequency response, inertia, black start, you know, there's all these other aspects that LDES does not get credit for. When it does, there's a whole other avenue to really bring in revenue and additional benefits. In the Philippines, for example, they have four different markets. So they have those two, but also they have the ancillary service market, they have the bilateral, the 24-7. They're able to bring LDES into real time and really kind of maximize the benefits. And there's other markets around the world where, you know, they might have a cap and floor and how LDES can play there. It really kind of depends on 
what's available and how we can really advance the marketplace to really bring in more of the attributes. There are additional contracts by industrial customers who want LDES to start powering their, whether it's the heat or their in, like mining industry or refinery. And so they're signing contracts to start build on site. And then I say there's still a lot of pilots that are growing from the one megawatt to the 50 to the 200 megawatt that are really starting to demonstrate all this additional value add. And that's really starting to, again, open up the marketplace. There's a lot of you know signed MOUs with utilities that are really starting to have open dialogue and discussions about benefits. What we're seeing in Europe too is that there is so much need to really stave off the renewable energy curtailment that we saw in the UK and also in Spain and Germany to help with congestion that they're starting to sign contracts too. And it doesn't take, you know, five years to build LDES. You know, some of these can be built within a year, some two years, and you don't have as many permitting siting issues either. So then you have that another kind of expedited nature that you can bring LDES into the system. I heard three big use cases from you, the way you said that. One was a behind the meter use case for commercial and industrial buyers who, when they're looking at doing a power purchase agreement, also want to include LDES or long duration energy storage as part of the power purchase agreement that they're buying. It feels like that is just going to become standard. Like, why would you buy power without having a way to store the power? Exactly. Um, or financing a way to store the power that you're generating as part of the power you're buying. That's what we're working towards. And then I heard a second use case, which was, also commercial and industrial buyers who in particular may be looking to secure an industrial benefit like heat or something that would historically be a cost to them. And Eldez is sort of essentially a byproduct of that purchase, but also helps them then manage their power needs. The third use case is the front of the meter use case with utilities and grid who are, as they're growing their capacity, are looking at ways to increase storage as part of that. Yes. And I would just add one more to the, a lot of the existing infrastructure, gas companies, fossil fuel companies are looking at how to transition in to LDES, utilizing their existing systems. So that kind of partnership too, whether it's just in-house R&D that just evolves, that just because they know they need this or, you know, signing a contract that they will kind of build and then bring into their market of making the equipment and then reselling it or having a percentage of the industry too. There's some unique partnerships that are also forming to really support the, and buttress the marketplace. The heat use case that we talked about of the four categories of Eldez, the heat one seems kind of obvious in terms of who would buy it and why they might buy it if they need it for an industrial use case. Like I need heat to whatever, create cement or to, you know, run my paper mill or whatever it may be. Of the other categories, though, you just walk through so many solutions. Like how in the world does someone decide what is right for their project? Well, we've been working with partners like the World Bank, UN, you know, various other solar storage associations in regional areas to look at what does that region need? What does that community need and help on criteria and kind of show if you're looking for something that you need durations of 24 hour plus, and this is your geography, then here's, you know, a list of options that you can choose from. If you're looking at replacing diesel in an airport or a fuel source here, what you can use also due to size and duration. So that's the diversity element that's so important that we really want to keep promoting to the marketplace is that we have so many choices and optionality that we need to choose from. Yes, there's not going to be, you know, a thousand companies of LDES, but it's going to funnel down. But you still need that diversity to make sure we can meet these needs each of our economies are demanding. Typically, is this sold through a project developer? Is Let's take the case of the first of the three use cases we talked about, which is I'm a commercial industrial company of some sort, I'm looking to create a new power purchase agreement. 
And as part of that, you know, I want as much renewable energy coming into my facility as possible. Maybe I'm trying to hit 24 seven, even if I'm not, I still, you know, care about, you know, hitting my net zero goals as a company and powering my facility on renewable energy. And so I'm looking at new power purchase agreements, trying to pencil out the math of how much I'm paying. And I'm realizing that if I can layer in long duration energy storage as part of the power that I'm buying, that I can get a better return, even if I'm having to essentially finance and fund this storage project as part of the power plant that I'm helping to build out. Who's bringing me the different sort of menu of potential projects? And how am I ultimately choosing what to finance? I know it's a very complicated probably question to try to create a simple answer to. But it's a really important question. And Cody, thanks for it, because I think this is the crux of it is that some parts of the world, there's a very clear process. And like in Australia, they just issued a, the government actually sponsored a request for setting parameters for the LDES market and beforehand worked with a variety of stakeholders to kind of fill in the criteria. And now everyone's now responding to this saying, you know, this makes sense, this doesn't, we need this flexibility, this is how you define it. So that open form, you know, we're really looking forward to seeing success come out of this, really giving opportunities to share lessons learned and setting a standard for what kind of criteria in a clear, transparent manner of how that's being communicated to customers and having that support mechanism by the government saying they're going to step in and also help fund some of this, especially for the larger costs, because up front, you know, might cost more, but the benefits within five, 10 years are going to be really, you know, accessible and known. We saw this in Spain too, recent specific ELDAs targets out there to get the right message to the utilities into the marketplace saying we need 15 gigawatts and we need to you know, really make sure we're going to support this by funding to find these public-private partnerships. We're seeing the same thing in Chile, in the United States with the IRA and the help from the U.S. Department of Energy with not just a loan guarantee program, but different grants and different initiatives and working with the states, New York, Texas, Minnesota, California on taking the pilot to the scale. It's a proven technology. There's all these different things that work. It's just really trying to scale it up to get the benefits. So Yes, making sure that criteria is understood, finding these partnerships to really communicate this, using groups like the council to you know, bring together industry voices and saying, this is what we need, this is what we want. You know, we have an MOU with Department of Energy, Edison Electric Institute, and EPRI, Andrew Power Research Institute. We're all working together on addressing modeling metrics. You know, how do we really better define LCOS, LCOC, like the levelized cost of storage, heat, electricity, energy? How do we really kind of bring this into this unified voice? So I think these partnerships are key. The fact that we clarify the criteria and get it out there and known. Coordinated RFPs are really important requests for proposals. And we're really starting to, again, share these lessons learning business case studies that work. But what's thrilling is that it's happening. I mean, it's not just traditional VC funds that are investing in this. It's now EPCs are now saying, this. I validate this, let's get this out there. You're having the traditional banks say, I want to invest in this. You're having customers demanding it. So the whole system has changed the request for information and just addressing it. So if I'm a chief sustainability officer at a Fortune 500 company, depending on where I am in the world, I am going to probably hit up a bank or a consulting firm that I know that has a specific focus on power purchase agreements, because that's where I'm going to start. I'm probably going to start with buying power. I'm going to hit them up. I'm going to talk to them about where my project is that I need power and how much roughly power I need. They're going to look at different power solutions. And then as part of that, they're going to say, hey, and by adding storage to this solution, here's what we're going to come out in terms of your levelized cost of energy overall. And then they probably have relationships with 
an organization like Eldez Council or NERC or somebody like that who's going to say, hey, here are these other programs. Oh, by the way, did you know that in the in New Jersey, there's this RFP out by the local government looking for XYZ types of storage projects? Let's apply for that as part of our overall PPA application. Is that how this stuff's happening today? In many ways, yes. We have become an authoritative voice on LDES, and we have really done a ton of education and outreach to diverse stakeholders, banks, investors. They're all coming to us to really better understand this. And we help our members know about all the opportunities that are out there and how to coordinate responses and really kind of put this forward. So especially because there's so much, but we're a one-stop place to really make sure that we're feeding information in and out and also coordinating the message among the industry to really push forward the importance of this. What you talked about, the incredible, you know, sort of growth that is going to be needed in LDES to help us meet our overall renewable energy goals. What has you optimistic at the moment and what areas need more attention? Optimistic because I think just the enormous awareness in this last year of how critical LDES is to meeting our global net zero decarbonization goals. It's a game changer. I mean, we're part of the Global Renewables Alliance with global wind, global solar, global geothermal, global hydropower, global green hydrogen, and long duration storage. So the six of us in industrial sectors are working together on how to improve permitting, siting, using 24-7 clean PPA. So that gives me hope that we have this industrial group that is really supporting how we're going to actually implement working together to meet the tripling of renewables and the role of LDES. That's very powerful. I think now what we need to do is really have the call out for LDES. We need more of these procurement targets that give the market signals and kind of give, give that clear message. More that happens, we can start scaling up. The investment, you know, the whole capital stack is debt and equity now. And it's thrilling just to see how much the last year, I mean, there's going to be some big announcements and, you know, in the, the rest of the year about how much is coming into Eldas. And this is going to help us scale. I mean, we've got to scale. And I think it's just what, and then talking about the trade-offs, what's going to push and pull to really get us to that next stage. So it's those frank conversations. It's strengthening our partnerships setting those targets, and then continue to push forward. On the capital stack, that's a good area to dive into. You know, 10 years ago, solar was a risky capital investment. Like, you know, project finance on the debt side had to take a little bit of risk because the cost curves weren't fully known yet. Today, it's not risky at all. Like, it's pretty clear what your ROIs are going to be on solar. It feels like energy storage is maybe at that 10 years ago point, you know, from where solar was 10 years ago in terms of there's so many of these different potentials out there and it's unclear, you know, which ones are at full technology readiness level, which ones can be deployed today at scale, et cetera. How are you seeing the capital markets evolve around this? And where is you know, risk capital involved? Where is more traditional sort of banking and debt capital involved? And is there an evolution you expect to see? I love this conversation, Cody, because the 10 years, you can all see that graph of just the prices coming out with solar. Well, well guess what? It's going to be five for Eldes. It's already happening. The conversations about just the traditional investors, and, and as you mentioned, the debt, the equity are all coming into play. And insurance companies, warranties, they are showing up and being part of the deals, part of the how to make this work. So it's already changing. And now I think it really just is the scaling up. There's so much money out there. It's just focusing and really making it work for Eldes that then will like pay benefit towards everything else. And is most of this capital that has been in the solar and wind arena that's moving into this area, is it capital coming from what I would call traditional fossil? I mean, fossil fuel infrastructure has known how to do this kind of project financing for decades. And so is it 
profit-seeking capital that has funded traditional energy for years and years that is now recognizing the profitability over here in the Eldez land? How are you seeing that kind of who's around the table evolving? Cody, it's all of the above, which is exciting and also scary. And I think this is just one of those frank conversations we need to have. But I think there's been a lot of conversation about impact investing and ESG, and but also just the reality of what does the renewable energy market look like? And it's not trying to take away from other pieces. It's just, again, maximizing and, and really pushing it forward. So there's hundreds of millions of dollars that we need to invest in this sector. And it really is the new industry. And so I think that's why there's so many traditional and new players coming to the table, because they know it's something they have to do. Well, Julia, I really appreciate your time and having learned from you today. What should I have asked or what should we have talked about that we haven't discussed? Why isn't everyone talking about Eldez yet? <laughs> you will soon. I mean, hashtag Eldez. It really is something that I think it's so exciting. It's such a huge piece of it. It's not the only piece, but it's a critical piece for us all working together on really having a solution. I think we all get really nervous and scared and almost kind of push aside climate talk because it's just so much in our face. But I think what we're realizing is that we do have solutions and we do have urgency to act, but we can do this together and we can continue to educate and work on really implementing some positive change that we can all have benefits from. I mean, it feels like you all need some kind of tagline that goes along with, you know, the sun isn't always shining, the wind isn't always blowing, but storage is always storing or something like that. <laughs> 24-7. Eldez <laughs> is here for you. <laughs> awesome. Well, I appreciate your time today. Thanks for sharing with us and good luck in the relatively new role you're in and what Thank sounds you. like an exciting few years ahead of you. Yes, we're really thrilled. You know, it's all about the duration. Years, months, we have a lot going on. So stay tuned. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Cody. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at mcjcollective.com. And if you have a guest suggestion... Let us know that via Twitter at MCJPod. For weekly climate op-eds, jobs, community events, and investment announcements from our MCJ Venture Funds, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks, and see you next episode. <laughs> <laughs>